Do you smell that? Something's burning. Good evening, and welcome to the Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Tonight, the first story of the Machine series. I found a VHS tape of a man who threatened to burn the world, was originally released September 1st of 2020, and is the first part of the Machine Share universe. Stories can be consumed in any order, but this is as good of a place to start as any. Tonight's tale is read by Zack Sloka, along with voices from Oscar Brophy, Tati Violet, Jen Kirk, and a mysterious Slovakian woman. Musical backing is provided by Mew and White Bat Audio. If you enjoyed this fiery tale, make sure to drop by in a couple of days to go deeper into the world of the machine. New episodes of the Cabinet of Fever Dreams come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Now, get comfy, plug in your VCR, and get ready for a fiery show. I studied the VHS tape. It was one of those pop-in shells, the ones that have an open slot in the center where you can throw in a camera cartridge and watch your home movies without having to process them at the film store. It was exactly what I was looking for. Any idea where this is from? I asked. No. The man replied, wiping away about a quarter of the sweat that had gathered in his beard. The rest of it kept dripping on the remainder of his strange wares. He watched me with an utter disdain, but I gave it another shot. Really? Like, where did you find it? Come on, I'm a, a little bit of background would be nice. It's not a boutique, buddy. You're at a flea market. You either buy it or you can fuck off. Too hot to deal with this detective shit. He said. Probably because I was the only customer at his stall. His tone softened. Got it from his storage unit auction. That's all I can tell you. Don't keep track of this shit. I just sell it. That's all the information I needed. I paid the man and took my mysterious prize home. Back in the early 2000s, I consumed YouTube vlogs like they were fine caviar and I was a Russian oligarch. There was just something about being able to kick back and become an invisible observer in someone else's existence that really got to me. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't some desperate basement dweller, I still had a functioning life of my own. But when evening came and all of my responsibilities were checked off, I'd jump behind the computer desk and take a break from reality. I'd sit back and watch hours upon hours of other people's lives. I watched a lonely man beat cancer, a promising student struggle with pills, a teen mother who cracked under the pressure of her new responsibilities. I watched people overcome and spiral and regress. I watched slices of raw humanity from all across the globe from the comfort of my own home. I got to get a taste of fates I never would have considered otherwise. A bunch of people speaking to inanimate objects reminding me that the world outside was vaster than I ever could conceive. Then the internet money rolled in and ruined it all. As soon as the people burying their soul into the camera lens realized they could get paid all of the honesty seeped out of their videos. They built up the drama to get more views. They started hiring editors to make them look good. They started to advertise products that no one really needed. Whatever bond I felt to the lives that I have observed for so many years was broken. That rawness of human stories that I craved was gone. But I still craved it. That's when I started going to flea markets and buying abandoned home movies. What I found on those assorted VHS tapes and unlabeled DVDs was much better than anything I could hope for with YouTube. These people acted completely naturally. The awkward pauses, the obvious annoyances, the grumpy people who didn't want to be on tape. It all made it so much easier to imagine that I was there. The fact that I didn't know I was watching made all the difference. Voyeurism. I know. That's what my girlfriend called it. She's my wife now, and she still calls it that. But what is marriage if not a descent into accepting your partner's quirks? She treats the dog like she's our daughter, and unless she starts breastfeeding, you won't hear me complain. My flea market bargain trips usually get an eye roll out of her, but there was never any yelling involved. As I pulled up the driveway, however, Laura was waving her arms around, yelling. Three hours? Are you serious, Ryan? Three hours out of the city for some stupid tapes? Betty stood obediently by her, gazing up at her as if she was some Greek goddess. 
Her little sausage tail wagged a bit when she saw me walk up the porch, but after a quick glance, she shook her head and looked back up at my wife. I was just a background character in that dog's life. I could have told Laura that all the markets around the city limits were tapped out, that any unmarked tapes I could find around town usually ended up being recordings of movies from television with the advertisements still kept in. But I didn't. This wasn't about the tapes. What's wrong, I asked. There's something broken in Betty's neck. I need to take her to the vet, and my husband decides to drive out to some cornfield and look for porn. The dog shook her head again. And again. The tapes aren't porn. They're... Echoes of the therapist we stopped going to bounced around my skull. This is not the time nor place for that argument. Something else wrong? I can't find her passport, every other bit of documentation I have, but I've looked all around the house and I can't find her passport. Laura's anger gave way to fear. The dog shook its head again. See? Look! There's something wrong with her neck! I was going to ask her why the hell she thought she needed the dog's passport for a vet check, but I didn't. I just shrugged. Haven't seen it. Hmm. Well... I hope they take us without it, she said, as if the chance for Betty's neck getting checked out without travel documents was slim to none. I'll call you when I know what's wrong. Can you do the laundry? Left whites by the machine? You just need to put them in. Laura made her way to the car with the dog. Betty shook her head again. God, I hope you're okay. Laura whispered to her pet. I'll need a glass of wine when we come back, she said to me. My wife and her dog drove off. I was just about to close the washing machine when I noticed a pair of my red boxers peeking out from the pile of whites. When I took them out, I noticed Laura's blue university t-shirt. In my haste to get to my mysterious tape, I didn't check if the laundry was sorted. It wasn't. The sorting couldn't have taken longer than two minutes, and for 30 seconds I tried, but my eyes quickly drifted to the television in the corner of the basement. The prospect of sorting through my dirty laundry instead of indulging in someone else's seemed like torture. I turned on the tape, just to get a glimpse of what I was getting into. Then I go and do that thing my wife told me to do. Within seconds of turning on the VCR, I knew I wasn't going anywhere. The tape was exactly what I was craving. The timestamp in the lower right corner read June 14th, 1994. We were inside of a fancy house. Nice marble staircases and oil paintings of mildly inbred aristocrats filled the screen as the camera shook and bobbed around the wedding reception. Whoever was behind the lens had no idea what they were doing. The zoom and shake of the video made it barely watchable. It was perfect. I could imagine standing there, among the fancily dressed guests, watching someone swing around a hulking piece of Sony in utter confusion. A group of children wearing miniature suits and dresses ran by the camera. The boys made faces and giggled. One girl in a yellow dress waved to the lens. Jesus, Jessica, where were you? I've been looking for you. A hushed female whisper cut through the hubbub of the reception. I jumped from my remote to turn up the volume. I'm just recording stuff. Mary said she wanted a video of today. Jessica replied as she zoomed in on a very old man standing out into the ether. Well, there's a problem. The other voice hissed. What's wrong? The crowd walked around the old man like he didn't exist. Jessica swung the camera at a particularly uninteresting part of the carpet. Mary's ex is here. He's freaking out at the gate, demanding they let him in. Is it Todd? Jessica pronounced the word Todd with the same intonation one would pronounce terminal cancer. I think so. The other voice whispered. Shit. For a split second I saw nervously clasped hands against a bright blue dress, but then the video cut out. Complete darkness. My phone dinged. They took us without the passport, thank God! I ignored it and stared at the screen, hoping that another part of the story would flicker into existence. After a couple waves of static, it did. A courtyard with a view of a stunning mountain range, in it a bride and groom. The woman, a Venus of the 90s. The man, a chiseled jawline with too much gel in his hair. They were smiling at each other, but the camera was too far off to tell whether those smiles were genuine. In front of the possibly happy couple was an array of wooden chairs seating the guests of the wedding. Beneath their feet, 
A sea of sparkling calm gently swayed. A layer of crystal glass divided the family and friends from the pool below them. The man next to the camera kept coughing. Someone next to him whispered something, but that didn't stop the coughs. The couple kept looking at each other. Then the video cut out. The darkness of the screen dragged on. For a split second, I even considered getting the laundry out of the way. But just as I was about to reach into the washing machine for Laura's orange stocking, another image crackled to life on the screen. We were back in the courtyard, but it was in considerably worse state. Cigarette stubs peeked out of the once impressive storm floor. Empty and sometimes broken bottles were all over the place, and where there was once a sea of calm, there was now the shell of a pool filled with broken furniture. Even smashed up with rough axe cuts, the dressers and chairs still looked expensive. It was evening, August 19, 2002, and the groom from eight years ago was wearing a dirty pink bathrobe. The man had aged a couple of decades. His hair was gathered around his shoulders in thick, greasy clumps. A patching beard of graying hair now covered his chiseled jawline. You changed me, he said. A cigarette hissed in his mouth and a controlled madness burnt in his eyes. You changed me. I used to like people. I used to want to do some good in this world. I could have done some good in this world. The man bent down and produced a bottle off the floor. But you hurt me. You hurt me so bad. I just want to see everything burn. The man continued ranting and raving, but as he walked away from the camera, his words fell to a static-filled whisper. I turned up the volume as loud as it would go, but the only thing I could hear was the chirping of crickets, intercut by a steady bassy tone. Out in the mountains beyond a courtyard, there was a grouping of lit-up tents. A man was going quietly insane as a fancy house as people across the valley indulged in cheery techno music. I was watching someone go insane on a summer evening. This tape was better than anything I could have ever hoped for. The man in the bathrobe took a pull from the bottle, recoiled, and then smashed the thing against the mountain of furniture stacked in the pool. He screamed. I heard that part. You ever talk about fire with Todd? Ever talk about how much you wouldn't want to burn alive? The man was back in front of the camera now. He was swaying from side to side, clearly off balance from whatever was in that bottle. Of course you don't. All you two talk about is vapid bullshit. All you do is waste your stupid lives, stuck in meaningless gossip that doesn't matter. But you know what? You know what? The man paused. A gentle gust of wind blew his filthy bathrobe apart revealing far too much of his malnourished body. For a second, he tried to pull the flimsy bit of pink cloth back around his jagged ribcage, but with a frustrated sigh, he gave up on his drunken hands. Memories of wasted nights in high school filled my head. I remember how the world spun, how impossibly bright and quick all the headlights were as I stumbled my way back home, how difficult it was to stand upright with my blood full of booze. Once the body is so far off in the deep end of the whiskey pool, there's only one way to momentarily regain balance. The man on the television squished his face into an effort-filled wink. For a blink, I was standing there, in his ratty flip-flops, watching the triple vision of the world focus into a singular blurry image. I love you, he mumbled to himself. He tore his eye away from the camera and stared down at his dying cigarette. Mm, but I won't love you for long. No, I won't. Because I'll be dead. And you'll be dead. And he'll be dead. The world will burn. The man reached behind the camera and produced another cigarette, but he didn't light it. He studied the stick of tobacco for a bit and put it behind his ear. How much do you know about fire? He asked, reaching down. You don't know shit about fire, he hissed, as he re-emerged off-screen with a jerry can. I've been reading my great-uncle's books. They say old Werner Zeig was mad. But how could a madman build all of this? Could a madman create an empire out of nothing? Could a madman... He spilled a bit of the gasoline out of the can as he waved around his arms. This calmed him down somewhat. 
The madman's voice dropped to a whisper. The music across the valley slowed down to a steady low heartbeat. I've been reading Bernazag's books, and I know more about fire than your feeble mind ever could. The words that the man spoke came out in a controlled whisper, but the ideas that lingered in his monologue flickered with madness. Fire was not a tool that humanity discovered. It was a portal to another realm that our primitive ancestors had stumbled upon and were too simple to comprehend. He spoke of flames as if they were hands, as if the flashes of chemical energy that burst out of a bonfire were fingers from a different world that were desperately trying to claw themselves into our realm. My uncle warned of the power that exists in the fire. He spoke of Alexandria, of Peshtigo, of Bois du Casier, of fires that ravaged humanity, but he spoke of them as if they were mistakes, as if we were lucky that the flames were put out. He was wrong. The man was a genius, but in this one essential thing he faltered. Each time that the burning god emerged, humanity was given a chance of becoming pure, and they spit out the embers of freedom. Every time that the burning god's arrival was postponed, it was a tragedy. But even that tragedy can be brought to rest. He went over to the pool and started pouring gasoline on the broken down furniture. As he poured, he spoke, but he was too far away in the camera's microphone. The music across the valley started to grow in tempo. The man started to punctuate his inaudible rants with manic shouts. I will summon him! He shouted. With the techno music playing in the background, he sounded like a misguided DJ trying to hype up a tired dive bar. After the can ran dry, he produced another one and resumed pouring and rambling. The man might have emptied out his pool and filled it with chopped up furniture, but he was far off in the deep end. Less than half a year after I got out of university, I also got out of my first real relationship. Five years of raw connection in the trash, and unemployment to boot. I was desperate for any form of affirmation in my life. I bought dozens of pickup artist books that offered to teach me the secret to making women want to sleep with me. Watching that broken man pour gasoline all over the antique furniture, a part of me felt his pain. It's not that difficult to fall for a cult when your heart is broken. My phone dinged again. There's something in Betty's ear. Doctor says not serious. She's such a trooper. Laundry done? I barely looked away from the television. The man in the bathrobe was done with the pouring. He was back in front of the camera now. A cigarette dangled from his lips. He was thinking. Fear broke through the mania in his eyes. He turned around and looked at the festival across the valley. The sun had set by then, but bright lights flashed across the darkening sky from the music-filled tents. The man let out a desperate groan. For a second, it looked as if he would walk away from the fire-to-be, as if he would give up on whatever ritual he was trying to perform. But before he could give up, his right hand flew through the air. He slapped himself, dropping the cigarette. After he picked it up, he slapped himself again. I will summon him! He screamed at the camera as he lit up a smoke. And he will burn the world! He took one long puff of his cigarette and threw it into the pool. For a moment, he simply stood there. A man in a filthy bathrobe with dark mountains stretched out in front of him. He looked at peace. He screamed. He screamed in a way I didn't think was possible for a grown man to scream. He screamed and ran through the courtyard, burning. He spun in place like a wounded animal, shedding his bathrobe. But as the flames behind him started to consume the furniture, his body propelled him away from the inferno. Screeching and limping, the man ran towards the camera. He knocked it over in his escape, but it kept recording. The fire soon drowned his agonizing cries out. Only his burning bathrobe remained. Out across the valley, the tents lit up with another color, the flashing of blue and red. For a couple beats of the far-off techno, I could see the siren lights traveling down the mountain road. 
but the flames quickly cut off my line of sight. My phone dinged again. I didn't look at it. I was so enthralled in the video that I had started chewing on my shirt collar. Haven't done that since I was eight. The flames reached out into the night sky like clawed fingers. They grasped that oxygen, growing, roaring, demanding more. The fire spread throughout the screen. I tilted my head sideways to see better. The inferno beckoned to me. I was on my feet, staring into the television. It was as if the fire was calling for me, pulling me in, demanding that I join it in that crackling universe of energy. In the cool air of my basement, I felt warmth. I reached out for the television. You should have seen the size of the thing that they pulled out of her ear. We need to be careful when we let her run in the... Ryan? Ryan, what are you doing? Laura stood on the stairs. Betty squeezed herself past and gave my calf a lick before jumping on the couch. I was, uh... My eyes shifted towards the open washing machine. Her gaze followed me. You didn't do the laundry. Great. Absolutely great. Come on, Ryan. We talked about this. I don't ask for a lot. I just want... It took me a second to realize she stopped talking. As she spoke, my eyes drifted back towards the screen. Out in that burning hellscape, I could see something move. I could see a beak. Two orbs of blue flame stared back at me. I tore my attention away from the Eldritch God and back towards my wife. Sorry. What are you doing? She walked down the last couple of steps with a controlled anger that cracked as soon as she saw what was on the television. Jesus Christ, Ryan, what the hell are you watching? It's, uh, some guy was going through a bad divorce, I think, so he tried to set the world on fire. Burned himself in the process, and now there's... As hot as the inferno on the screen was, her icy stare cut through me. She inhaled sharply, turning her words into cold steel. That shit belongs in an evidence locker, not our house. Laura stamped her way back up the stairs, with Betty barely making it past the door before she slammed it. I turned my attention back towards the screen. Whatever presence I saw hiding in that fire was gone now. The flames still tore through the sky with an animalistic fever, but the beast's eyes were gone. The fire rolled on for a couple of minutes before its thunderous cry turned into a hiss. A burst of water was softening the flames. Soon enough, firefighters were talking about how they wished they could have stayed at the festival. As they sprayed water over the gasoline-filled pool, one of them proceeded to give a five-paragraph essay's worth of description of a redhead bartender he once saw in the 90s. I thought about rewinding the tape, about going back to that moment when I saw those burning balls of light hiding in a storm of bristling energy, but I decided against it. Upstairs, I could hear a cork get angrily pulled out of a wine bottle. I sorted through the washing machine, turned it on, and went to get a wine glass. I'm sorry, I said. She was on the porch, puffing on a cigarette with one hand and scratching Betty behind the ear with the other. She didn't look at me as she spoke. You can't keep doing this, Ryan. This isn't about laundry. This is about you not being reliable. You can't just drop everything to indulge in your voyeurism. I tried to remember all three parts of the three-part apology thing that our therapist kept on rambling about back in the day. I'm sorry for not being reliable and sometimes acting like a child. I'll try to do better next time. Her lack of yelling made me reconsider therapy for a split second. So, Betty okay now? The dog wagged her tail at the mention of her name. Oh yeah, she was a real trooper. Held still for the dog, shook a bit, but didn't move her head at all. Everyone in the lobby kept on saying how cute she is. Asking about Betty would always get Laura talking. We finished the bottle of wine, watched some shitty reality TV show, made love, and now Laura is sleeping on my chest. Betty curled up by her feet and seems to be having a dream that involves a lot of biting and running. There's a nice summer breeze outside. I should be sleeping.
The thought of going back to the basement and rewinding the tape was there as soon as we finished the wine. Ballora wanted to watch some scripted reality TV show about hot people looking for love on a beach, and I figured I'd be a good partner and indulge with her. The question of the sentient inferno disappeared during our own little fiery bout of passion. But now that we're post-coital and cuddled up, I can't let go of the memory of those hungry claws. She's a light sleeper, so if I move, she'll wake up and be disappointed. And I don't want to disappoint her. She might have a weird relationship with a dog and a horrible taste in entertainment, but I'd probably be burning furniture without her. Maybe she's right. Maybe the video does belong in some sort of evidence locker instead of our basement. All this is bouncing around in my head and I can't get any sleep, so I figured I'd come to this little insomniac corner of the internet and vent for a bit. I'm torn between the mystery of what that desperate man brought into our world and being a decent husband. My wife just mumbled something about how I should go to sleep. I think the light from my phone is keeping her up. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Lucky J. Horton, Alan Rawl, Kuss, Bob Kondrick, Chicken Mixer, and Daniel Wengel. If you'd like to join these fine people and support the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Mike J. Langer. And so concludes this episode of The Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Make sure to drop by next episode for another tale from the Machine series.